0: In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS Head of Knowledge, Impact and Policy, Kelly Shepard, that's me, talks to author and broadcaster Helen Lewis about her book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. When documenting the progress of feminism and stories of rebel women, history often sands off the edges to make the stories fit. They're sometimes depicted as strong and likeable, not necessarily difficult, or indeed angry. In reality, stories of change and changemakers are not clean and linear. Half stories are often relayed to help fit the dominant narrative. Dig a little deeper, and the accounts that Helen Lewis tells of strong women who have advanced feminism are sometimes complicated, with the central women often perceived as difficult. Helen's book explains why difficulties matter if we're to bring about lasting change. Helen, welcome to the Between the Lines podcast. Thank oh, you very but... much for having me. You're very, very welcome. I want to start by congratulating you on the book. It's it's fascinating. I'm really. Praise is always
1: very welcome. Very much. It's brilliant. Look,
0: look how many post-it notes I have. It's sticking out of the top of this book, like, and pencil marks, and and a
1: nice matching colour post-it notes as well, which match the very, very loud yellow and blue cover that the book has.
0: (laughs) I think what's brilliant about it is that it's really clearly told. Um, so I think it's it's a really accessible read and I would compel every woman and in actual fact every man to read it. I wanted to start by asking you how these stories have come about and how how you've told them in this way and why you think it's important to tell the story these stories at this particular point.
1: Well, thank you for saying that it's accessible because it's exactly what I was going for with it was the idea that I think when you try and read about feminism on the internet, it can often feel like, you know, you're a episode 9369 of the long-running soap opera and you think well wait a minute why is she angry with her like what did that person do and and actually it's very hard to get that kind of information and that kind of broad view across the waterfront I thought there are brilliant books that are you know a first introductory why you should care kind of you know things like Catelyn runs how to be a woman turned a huge number of people onto feminism and then there are brilliant books about one kind of specific issue whether it be FGM or the pay gap or anything like that but what there kind of really wasn't was an attempt to kind of tell the really you know, high level story of the 20th century, really, in feminism. And I, it, as soon as I said that to myself, I thought look, the reason that probably no one's tried to do that is that that's a mad thing to try and do, because there's so many women, there's so many different causes, you know, it's as I write later in the book it's something that kind of goes from boardrooms to bedrooms you know from big structural questions about the economy to small questions about you know are you going to take your husband's name feminism kind of gets into everything so no wonder no one's tried to write something that was kind of big and and sweeping about it and that's where the idea about writing it in fights came from um so I write about the fight for divorce the fight for the vote the fight for equal pay you know all of these things come up and not just that as a way of structuring them, I felt was important. But also I wrote this book, you know, after the EU referendum, after the election of Donald Trump, you know, I'm coming from a left wing, progressive sort of background. It felt like, you know, oh, hang on a minute, we've lost the knack of actually winning stuff and getting stuff done. So let's look at some successful campaigns for women's rights. And ask you know what did they like why how did that happen like what what sacrifices do they have to make what demands do they have to make what coalitions do they have to make like how do you make change happen and for people with my kind of politics that was a really vital question to be asking and still is a really vital question to be asking now
0: And i think you're right i mean particularly in a, in a time when we have this you know whole ideas of backlash and kind of all the stuff that we thought that we'd fought for going backwards what i think is is really interesting in the book and and obviously the central theme given by its name, is that you have this idea that people don't have to be perfect to bring about positive change. You know, this, this whole idea that you separate achievement from likability. Um, I wondered if you perhaps might like to unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Well, I think it's really important, particularly in the history of feminism, because there are so many feminist fights that I've sat through in the last 10 years that have been about, well, you can't admire X because she's Y. And fine but you can pretty much do that to absolutely everybody particularly the speed at which progressive politics moves now you know I wrote a piece last week in which I reflect on the fact you know Barack Obama a great progressive president in lots of ways when he came into office he didn't think that gay people should be able to get married you know that's you know that's how quickly we've moved and in some ways that's wonderful but it also means that anybody from before 1990 you know there's going to be stuff in the rap sheet that you're just not going to agree with and how do you live with that when you're trying to write a you know a history of a social movement that you sort of support and believe in and i you know and i was tired of reading all these books that were basically the way that they dealt with it was to pretend that stuff didn't happen you know hooray for the great feminist heroines of history and you kind of go what, what but really like and it's and you know and it's and I I write about goodnight stories for rebel girls and I don't mean to have a go at that because that's a children's book, but that is a children's approach to history and it shouldn't be happening in books for adults too, where you have to, the only way you can cope with having heroes who are problematic is to pretend that that none of that happened or to decide that people eventually tip over a mysterious line of too problematic and then you just pretend they never happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that what really struck me when I was reading it was This whole idea of, you know, people being airbrushed out of history, but also how sort of whole chunks of history have been told in a very sort of different way. And the the accounts of the suffragettes and those sort of horror stories of force feeding women on hunger strike. Can you explain a little bit about that, that section in the book?
1: Yeah, so the suffragettes were annoyed, essentially, that they weren't being treated as political prisoners. They were being treated as ordinary criminals. So they started going on hunger strikes. And the government was genuinely worried that they were going to die. So it began this procedure um, in the 1910s of force feeding them. Essentially, four or six people held you down, a tube was put down your nose or your throat, and actually sort of buckets, basically, of feeding solution were, were poured in. It was incredibly violent. People broke teeth, you know, they, were, they vomited. If it went down into your lungs, you could end up with a lung infection. Um, and and it really, it kind of didn't work very well. And eventually. The, government gave it up and instead came up with this idea of the cat and mouse act where they would just release you when you got too emaciated and then they could put you back in prison again once you'd kind of fattened up a bit but you know the extent it was kitty marion who one of the suffragettes she was forfeited up 300 times it's an incredibly brutal procedure that was done over and over again an incredibly
0: radicalizing procedure too we we learn about the suffragettes like you say in you know like very sort of popular books we taught about it at school but But I felt a bit naive that I didn't know that kind of detail. You know, I knew the suffragettes wore badges to prove that they had been on hunger strike, you know, that kind of badge. But I didn't really realise that side of it. And it just made me think, you know, why didn't I know about it? And why do big bits of history just get airbrushed in that way? Do you think it's just because they're completely unpalatable?
1: Well I think once you've won the victory it doesn't maybe you have a quite a good reason to tidy away the bits of it that you'd rather not like from the official narrative and in the case of the suffragettes there's quite a compelling case that the suffragette fellowship which did a lot of work at collecting the accounts of suffragettes you know collecting the memorabilia putting all of that stuff together like didn't like the the terrorism bits and mm-hmm. sort of tried to gently kind of downplay that but it's it, it, it to me it's vital to get it back because even at the time there was a huge schism between the suffragists and the suffragettes about whether or not violent or non-violent activism was the way to go and also vital to that to my mind is is not just saying this wasn't just you know uh, the one that the, the act of suffragette violence that gets talked about the most is emily davidson obviously under the king's horse at the derby and in a way you can kind of see why that's the acceptable face of suffragette violence because the person that she hurt really apart from the horse was herself um, what's harder to talk about is the fact that there were suffragettes who were OK with the idea that they we're going to kill people, that, you know, that the, the escalation of the extreme militant phase was going in that direction. If the First World War hadn't broken out, it's, it's hard. You know, it's, it's possible that they might have actually moved. If people attacked the prime minister. You know, um, you know they, the bombing of Lloyd George's house was done when it was empty, but there was, you know, it was pretty careless. It could have quite easily have caught a, a workman. Um, and, and that was a kind of risk that they were prepared to take. They had gone so far down that ideology and, and, and feeling that it was justified. And also the other half to that story is it's really important to understand what radicalized them. Partly was the actions of the British state,
0: no. No.
1: which surveilled them. You know, like we really would cute. do, yeah, a, a, like a modern day terror cell. Mm. You know, policemen sexually assaulted them on Black Friday when they tried to um, storm the, the House of Commons. Um, you know, force feeding was compared by many suffragettes to to rape. It was seen as a kind of physical violation. You know, and the government treated them like, you know, like really like enemies of the state, which I guess they, they were. And so if you don't tell those two very uncomfortable bits of the story and show how they knit together, you're not really, you're getting the full suffragette story. And also the other thing you're not getting is if you feel now, why don't things happen? Why, you know, why, why are we so compromised now? You know, why doesn't anyone care? Like, why can't we get any of stuff done? It's quite a useful challenge to go, do you care enough about this cause that you're willing to die for it? And almost no one is any yeah. anymore yeah. In, in Britain. Um because and, and th- th- they felt so strongly about this that this was the cause. They didn't do anything else, the suffragettes. They didn't do Irish Home Rule, they didn't do general do-gooding. Like they, this was the cause and they were prepared to die for it. And actually that's that's something that you have to acknowledge in when you tell the story of their success. Mm,
0: mm. No, and it's, it is that that bit of, of getting the balance in a story, isn't it? Because what what I think we tend to see, and this is why the book is so brilliant, because you know these bits about individual cases or about individual stories, bits of history, but you don't know that full picture. So that whole you know that whole bit that you don't particularly have to like everything that everyone stood for like you say you know people could have really got hurt in that and and the suffragette story is very much portrayed in that way of you know um by day they were sort of nice demure ladies and and occasionally they would go out sometimes with some banners
1: i blame um, mary poppins entirely for that right
0: yeah, like I do yeah. think that
1: is the image that most people have of suffragettes is the mother and Mary Poppins singing, you know, cast off the shackles of yesterday while, <laughs> you know, loads of, um, you know, while well, she's got a cook and a cleaner and everything herself in her, her own home, right? It's a, mm. it's, a, it's a pretty cruel caricature of the suffragettes who were mm. primarily middle class, definitely an upper class, but... Again, it was very, there were very few, there were some working class women in the movement. It was really hard yeah. to be, like if you had been, you know, Mary got a couple of kids, you didn't have the freedom to hang around London in the Women's Social Union headquarters risking arrest. It's not surprising that they skewed that way. That's, you know, good economic reasons for that. But yeah, yeah I think I, I blame, I blame Mary. I'm, a, I'm the fun, the fun killer who says, don't watch Sherry Poppins. It's anti-suffragette propaganda
0: well it's not a historical account that's for sure but um the the other thing that that really struck me in that and and it's something that at ids you know we we talk about a lot whose voice counts and that whole you know in your final chapter when you you know you talk about people being able to write down the accounts of what happened you know to be literate to actually be able to record what they're doing and you know to be able to go back and sit and go through the microfiche and actually read those stories is a real sort of power imbalance isn't it that only certain people are given voice to tell their story in a particular way. I felt
1: um, like that very strongly when I was reading the letters between Lady Constance Lytton and, and Annie Kenny. Uh, and annie kenney is the highest ranking working class woman in the in the suffragettes and you know her handwriting is terrible she left school at 10 she was one of i think 11 children um you know she she had to go and start working in a mill at that at that point like the family needed the money versus lady constance Lytton, who was sitting around a country house incredibly bored reading dostoevsky and it's not surprising that you know that that You know, and I thought I'm going to have to fight against this because I just want I'm finding it much physically much easier to read the letters written by the middle to upper class women. And I think the same thing, you know, we're very lucky in the case of Jeb and Desai, who I write about, who led the Grunwick strike in the 1970s, that she gave extensive evidence to the Skarman inquiry into into that strike. Because it means that, you know, she she because she never wrote a memoir, it means that her words and her voice is recorded and and has been set down. And then to go to the education chapter, when I was in both Uganda and Nepal, where, you know, girls' education is a huge project because of the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, you just suddenly begin to see how threatening women's education is. And you understand the impulse that led, um, you know, Taliban operatives to shoot Milani Yusuf's eye in the head. Women being educated is incredibly powerful. It gives them the ability to tell their stories. It gives them the ability to advocate for themselves. If you're a fundamentalist, that is incredibly challenging to
0: you. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's interesting that that you reference those global examples. I mean, obviously, a, a lot of our listeners and certainly our work at IDS is around uh, you know, international development. And I, I was wondering around some of those global references and whether or not globally you think women are seen as difficult when they speak out in a particular issue or act in a certain way. I mean, I was particularly struck by the chapter or the references in there. When we look at things like um huge increases in unpaid care at the moment in covid and you know the 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 chapter on time and how time is spent and looking at things like childcare and cleaning and cooking you know these have all increasingly fallen to women and during lockdown we've obviously really seen um huge increases in that so it kind of you know it reminds you that there's a long history of these imbalances but what it'd be really interesting to touch on is whether you think those imbalances are are seen globally well that
1: yeah, I think you do see them globally, but obviously every country has its own particular political situation. But we know globally that women have less leisure time than men. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's something that you just see. I don't think there's a country in the world where it's, where it's equal, but some countries it's particularly unequal. And actually, when I was researching, I wrote an article early on in the coronavirus crisis about, you know, the, the, the challenge of unpaid care work and the kind of coronavirus is a disaster for feminism. That was drawing on work from particularly Claire Wenham at the LSE into the Ebola and Zika outbreaks. And what had happened there? And she talked about the fact, you know, in Liberia, there was a silent epidemic of domestic violence. Um, You know, the fact that women ended up going back into the home far more, you know, they were unable to go to markets, for example, and sell produce you know, set back their their independence, hugely. You know, the fact that childhood vaccines, for example, were not given out, you know, the fact that when children fell ill later, it was left to mothers picked up more of the burden of, of caring for them. So I think, you know, you can, you can see these patterns playing out in different ways in different countries, but they, you know, they are the fundamental underlying idea that you, you know, to what extent the state supports you in your, you know, in your, in your, in your desire to have a family, is a question that is is worth asking absolutely everywhere because to my mind you know i don't have kids but children you know in, a, in the developed world they're there to work and support your pension like you do have a stake in society the idea that other people's children are entirely up to them their personal choice is not to my own right you know they are they're part of a of a fabric of society that at some point will support you
0: mm, mm. i think i mean that that's the the other bit, it seems really obvious. You talk about it quite clearly around this whole idea that how people are shaped is like, you know, the, the water that we live in, that you're, you, you know, you're very much shaped by the society that you're in, about the societal needs, and that, that whole, there isn't sort of one nice, clean, defined view of feminism, which I quite like the fact that, that the book in itself was called A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. It's not A History of Feminists in Eleven Fights. Right. And I I found that quite an interesting distinction as as well that you're you know you're not you're talking about a progressive movement that is global but it's never on that kind of linear trajectory it kind of moves around um, all over the time and actually I think domestic domestic uh, work and unpaid care is a real magnifying glass but it, it defies most cultures it you know it cuts across most cultures and most kind of economic classes as well that even when there are households that have got income it still tends to be a woman that will organize that that uh, level of care
1: i found um the work of ali russell hoschild in the second shift in the 1980s and 90s i think that was that's really fascinating because she has this comparison between women entering the workforce in america in the 70s being like um urbanizing peasants she calls it, you know, and, and, and being like, um, you know, workers who were indentured maybe even to a certain place or, you know, had, had to some extent bonded to a certain place, moving into cities. And, you know, to the outside, it kind of seems sometimes inexplicable that someone would go and work in a dirty factory with, you know, poor health condition. And I think we then over romanticize the idea of what it's like to be a subsistence farmer. Mm-hmm. And actually, what happens when you move into a city is you get, you know, an income, and more agency over your life. And, and 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 the same thing happened with women moving into the workforce. You know, yes, their time was much more stretched. Yes, actually, maybe they ended up working more hours, but that gave them independence and agency and income.
0: Mm. And that
1: was to some extent kind of a comparable shift to ones that you see elsewhere.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it is something that, I mean, I say at IDS we did quite a lot of study around um, unpaid care and it is, it is just fascinating that it is just universal. Um, Another another area of the book that really sort of resonated as I was reading it in, in lockdown, um, with the increase, you know, during COVID-19, we've got these increased accounts of domestic violence. You know, for some people, lockdown is, is you know, it's obviously been absolutely horrific in that sense. And your chapter, which was looking at Aaron Pittsley's kind of controversial views, um, you know, really ring true because I'm somebody in my role, it, IDS looks at impact and use, the use of evidence to inform change. Um, and so this story kind of sat really uncomfortably because you've got these accounts here of um, statistics about domestic violence that seem to portray quite a complex narrative about women potentially being more prone to violence. And it was really, really interesting because Erin Pitsy's name for me was somebody in the eight... I can remember, it, you know, Refuge being set up. I can remember her being you know, really kind of, you know, out there, kind of hanging out with the kind of Boy George characters and, and being super famous and suddenly she she's not part of the story anymore. Um, and although Refuge is obviously huge and, you know, a huge charity and kind of recognised for doing really good work. Her story was not one that I was aware of until I, until I read the book. Um, I wondered if you might want to tell us a little bit more about that case.
1: Yeah, so Erin Pitsey founded the first women's shelter in Britain in Chiswick in 1971, and she got a house from the council, and so sort of essentially, not exactly quite squatted it, but like they always had more people in than was safe, and you know, it was a constant running battle, but the one thing that she did, as you said, is she, she decided that domestic violence, or as it probably would have been called more at the time, wife-beating, you know, just wasn't being talked about, and when it was being talked about, it was being talked about by kind of policymakers and newspapers as something that like lower class people did not people like us and she was intent on proving that you know this was absolutely endemic throughout society and you get jack ashley talking about the in the domestic violence bill in 1973 i think for the first time using the words domestic violence in the house uh, trying to understand this particular form of violence and it's one of the things that feminism does is you know, it coins phrases to describe particular experiences and therefore gives people a way to suddenly understand what it is that they've been going through and I think that's when it can be really powerful because people can go I didn't know there was a word for that like I didn't know this was fundamentally I didn't know this was happening to anyone else And I think that's one of the things that draws a lot of women to feminism is hearing a description that is so like their own experience, but they thought had only happened to them, particularly if they thought it had only happened to them because that was somehow their fault, right? The kind of idea that, oh, you know, like if I, I, oh, he says that I wind him up, you know, he says I'm always nagging him, like he says he loves me, all of that kind of stuff that goes with domestic violence. I think it was hugely groundbreaking for women to hear that these were things that were happening to hundreds of, you know, thousands of other women as well as them. And then there was a word for it, or a phrase for it. So she did all this, and as you say, she had celebrities at the house. She had the Who there. She had Boy George. There. She had um, David Astor, I think, at the time, owned the Observer. She was in a documentary called "Scream Quietly, or the Neighbours Will Hear." She wrote a book called "The Slut's Cookbook." All this kind of stuff. She was a huge, like, you know, celebrity hmm. activist. And then, as you say, what happened was that she uh, she didn't like the formal structures of the women's movement. She thought they were all kind of Marxists and Stalinists uh, and she'd grown up in China. So she had this real horror of kind of authoritarian ideology. And at the same time, she also had this very complicated theory about the idea that there are dysfunctional relationships. And talking entirely about male violence towards women was simplifying it and actually alienating men. Um, and, and not really addressing the fundamental problem. It was just this, it'd become in the kind of caricature that feminism was a sort of man-hating ideology. And the thing that drew me to writing about that is that she will say the same thing that people who've worked in the domestic violence sector will say to you, which is it's really hard for people on the outside to understand why women go back. To the average person, the idea that you get hit by your partner and you don't leave them is extraordinary. They sort of tell themselves, well, I would obviously, I would leave. And people don't and you have to account for for why that is now sometimes those reasons are purely economic they can't afford to leave sometimes they're to do with children you know like you i you know will he paint me in the divorce court as a terrible mother and i'll never get to see my kids again and that happens to men the other way around as well and sometimes it's about coercive control and the idea that someone has been kind of worn down so much that they don't really they can't really function as an independent human being anymore on their own All of which is far more complicated, as is the fact that sometimes people do get into dysfunctional relationships where both sides are violent. That's not the same as saying that women's violence is the same as men's because men are much more likely to, because they're bigger and stronger, and, you know, they're much more likely to kill their partners than the other way around, much, much more likely. But I thought that it was a shame that the conversation that she'd been trying to have became associated so heavily with anti-feminism that actually we've sort of, We've, and, and I've just written a piece of The Atlantic about this. As a result of all of that, we've limited our response to domestic violence to some extent to refuges, to refuge provision. Mm-hmm. We don't really talk an awful lot about perpetrator programs, what works, what doesn't, or about community support and intervention about how you can help people you know, cope with being in, in those kind of relationships if they without demanding that they leave Mm. Um, and I think that's all been really tough because again it's not it's not a simple we want a simple story where a man hits a woman and she leaves him and we give her a refuge place and then uh, happily ever after Mm. and trying to deal with what actually really happens in violent relationships is 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 morally complicated and murky Mm. and sometimes requires you to make quite unpleasant you know I mean, how, how, do, how you know, I, I always think about this a lot. How would I deal with somebody who came to me if I was a caseworker and said, he beats me up all the time, but I'm not going to leave him? Do you say, yeah. well, sorry, you're not, you're not getting any help then?
0: Because it is that thing of, are you telling me this because you want to bring about change? Or are you telling me this to vent something? Or why are you telling me it? Do you know what I mean? And I think, yeah, it, it's a really... In most of those terrible situations you would want to bring about change wouldn't you that's the thing and the the thing that i mean we grapple with all the time in you know in international development is that change is really rarely linear it's not straightforward it isn't just a happens and that leads to b
1: but also you want them someone to leave the violent relationship and their next relationship to be different yes um, and that's another really big problem with domestic violence is like we you know we've, we've developed a mechanism for getting people out of one relationship we haven't necessarily developed a mechanism for educating them and giving them the self-worth to feel that they deserve to be in a and they can cope with being in a in a loving functional relationship or
0: to even know what what that kind of relationship is do you know what i mean to even recognize that it exists because obviously
1: and that they deserve it and they're worthy of it right and mm -hmm. i think that's that's often a really big part of it too
0: so do you think i mean in that case with with erin Pitts, i mean you know you have a lovely account of going to see her in her flat in london and And her, I think, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but her essentially sort of saying, you know, I I do interviews and I'm here if people want to talk to me, but I'm just not out there in the public domain anymore. So was there a sense that she had done that herself, that she just thought, right, I'm going to withdraw from this? Or had she been ostracised from the sort of feminist community?
1: No, I think she was very definitely ostracised. And part of that came with the fact that she became the go to person for people who wanted to attack feminism yeah right which now seems kind of quaint because obviously we've now moved on to sort of new topics that are are used to do that but she was your kind of if you want the piece that says feminism is making women unhappy and destroying the nuclear family she's your talking head and and that and she got so she got dragooned into a very polarized feminist versus anti-feminist argument and and you know you see that all the time now is that you get so many of these complicated arguments are sort of reduced down to two warring tribes and if someone doesn't you know, subscribe to all the orthodoxy on one side. They're sort of automatically moved into the other camp, even when they probably have far more in common with the people in the original camp than they do the other the other side. So it was a, to me that was a story of polarization. And I felt the same about Maureen Colhoun, who I write about in the book, who was the first openly gay MP. She was a Labour MP, but she got deselected, eventually reinstated, she appealed by Labour, ostensibly about comments she made about race really it looks more like it was about the fact that she was just seen as a a loose cannon and of course she'd come out as gay and was living with her partner and therefore labor never championed her she was never the good news story look at us what an incredibly progressive party we are we've got a gay mp so when chris smith comes along who's the first male gay mp that's part of a story that new Labour wants to tell about itself. Like, we're new, we're changed. This is how different we are. We're the first party that's, like, welcoming and then saying, you know, we'll make you a minister. And, and because Maureen didn't fit, it didn't, wasn't part of a good story for, by her own political tribe, she got forgotten. Mm. And why would, you know, the Conservatives celebrate her? She's not one of them. And I think that's something that you see, you know, if people fall out with feminism or fall out with their political tribe, they do get written out of history because there's no one there to champion them.
0: Mm, mm. And it's hard, isn't it? Because I think, you know, you've seen it with with a lot of sort of more modern writing, you know, I think about people like Catelyn Moran, for example, you know, I, I love reading Catelyn Moran, been to see her and, you know, she does this great thing where she says, you know, stand up on your chair and shout, I am a feminist at the start of her shows and you get the whole auditorium standing up and doing that. And there's a real sort of sense of kind of collective power and you are this thing and isn't it great to be a feminist? But actually, what was fascinating from those the, the um, case studies that, that that you highlight is you know if you don't fit a certain mold then you know if the face doesn't fit them maybe you're not in that camp you know it's that kind of thing which is is really counterintuitive to that whole sort of sense that you're part of something and you know as a woman that you would want to be a part of it or even you know as a man that you'd want to be a part of it because feminism one would hope it would be a, a broader church that gives you, you know, a chance to talk about, as you say, like shared things or p- potentially difficult subjects. But actually that isn't from what, from the cases that, that you're reporting on, that isn't always the, the, the case, you know, that some of that c- kind of murkier stuff is, is more difficult to talk about. It's
1: um, a weird irony that having written a book the subtitle, of which is a history of feminism, I've never been less interested in feminism as a label. And, and, in, and in, as an identity, right? I don't think, I what you're talking about with Catlinn with Rand has a purpose, definitely. Part of, lots of stuff is, you know, social movements are sustained by senses of belonging, sense of duty to other people, comradeship, all of that. Like, particularly looking at the case of the suffragettes, only 1,500 of them, you know, they needed strong bonds to, to, to kind of hold them together in the face of huge opposition. I think about the same thing about, you know, the civil rights pioneers who were, you know, risking getting beaten, shot, all of this kind of stuff you need to you know have a sense of of connection to the people around you that you're all doing doing in the same way but at the same time you will always be judged on the outcome Mm. and I think I'm less interested actually in somebody who particularly on the internet is sort of winning the world's best feminist competition by saying all the right things than I am in actually people who go out and just do it just set it up and I think I do think that's part of trying to reorientate myself away from the idea that what matters is really saying all the right things and having the right opinions to actually you making life better net for other people Mm -hmm. because we do live in a society in which you know talk is extremely cheap but it doesn't necessarily I don't know from your perspective you feel this it doesn't necessarily feel any easier to actually get things done to pass great legislation to implement really good policy to fund great programs all of that is as hard as it has ever been.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, when I'm trying to track stories of impact through research, whatever that research might be, um, you know, I'm aware that there's lots of different definitions of impact. And, you know, we talk about having impact in terms of people's conceptual impact and changing their their viewpoints to having changing their networks and who they mix with and things like that as having, a, you know, as having impact. I would say probably, I don't know, 90% of the time, actually, what people are really looking for, if not more than 90%, is that direct instrumental impact. You do this, it leads to that, you know, it's tangible, I can see it and it, it's there. And so, you know, you can have uh, a lot of talk and you can have a lot of, um, you know, nice rhetoric, if you like, but at the end of the day, if change isn't happening at all, um it's really difficult to keep people's interest, particularly things like, you know, funders and stuff like that to keep on going back and doing more and more of that work. And actually I think in a lot of the stuff that we do, the the interesting stuff comes when people are just talking and unpacking those subjects. They might not have the answers, but you know, they're they're shedding light on something which um could bring about small amounts of incremental change. And I think that's the other thing, you know, with, with focusing on some of the the bigger parts in history, you have these huge amounts of change. the suffragettes, you know, it's a huge bit of change. It's a huge impact um, that that's brought about. So some of the smaller, the more detailed bits in the the book of you know people's lived realities, I I, I found really fascinating. As I say, just things that you didn't necessarily know about, you know, before. Were there, were there were there bits as you were going through it where you just thought, blimey, I, I had no idea that this happened before? How revelationary were some of the stories as you were researching them?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, I think about the fact there's a suffragette called um, Una Duval, Una Dugdale, um, who just refuses to say obey in about 19, in the 1910s and is, is basically told, you've got to say it, otherwise your marriage isn't valid.
0: Right. And I
1: think, you know, I just think about. And and that's not a massive historical record. You know, she's not, there's no statue to her, but like everything for an easy life, just told her to kind of put up with it, but she fought against it anyway. And I think those are the stories that most impressed me to some extent. One of the fascinating things about the book is that it's reckoning with the fact that actually sometimes narcissists are really good at achieving change because they're incredibly charismatic. They attract lots of followers, you know, all of that stuff. But i you know i I love a, a kind of humble foot soldier who just sacrifices something or puts themselves on the line without expecting any reward at all and Those are the stories I think I probably find most moving is people who never expected to be recognized for what they did. they just did what they thought was right
0: yeah, yeah, and I think you see that in all different aspects of of life don't you um, i want I want to think a little bit about kind of what you think the future holds in this sense, so there's a lovely little bit where you talk towards the end of the book where you talk about the need to capture the lightning in the bottle. You know, what what kind of uh, feminists or what would the future, a feminist future, look like to Helen Lewis? Well, the thing I'm
1: obsessed with at the moment, and I think now is the time to push on it, is childcare, particularly elderly care to some extent as well. But but has anything revealed the mad bargain that working mothers particularly but also fathers have made you know more than the pandemic you know the the fact that there were people who you know had no nursery or no school but also couldn't rely on their informal networks couldn't rely on grandparents or extended family or whoever it was you know just how much we ask of people that they do the first shift of paid labor and then and and a whole second unpaid shift after that I think is really striking to me and also I just think it it's about asking people what they kind of what they have a right to expect from employers and from the world of work and I think now is a you know a tough time to make that case because given that we're expecting employment to be so high but there are going to be big societal shifts as a result I think of the pandemic you know maybe not the ones we're expecting or not ones that become apparent for another 10 years or whatever but 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 the the world is kind of slightly in flux now and actually you know is it right that I mean particularly I think in the case of elderly care we really need to go back to the idea of funding that out of out of people's wealth there is no other way to fund it and I think we're just going to have to bite that bullet of the fact it's going to be quite unpopular but most people would rather not have a terrible care home provision and we can't do what some more traditionalist leaders are doing and try and shove it all back onto women and say you know it's, it's, a, it's a family responsibility it's that's not fair either but particularly in the case of, of child care you know the idea that people have been regularly being besieged by their toddlers on Zoom meetings, you know, this is just only making even more apparent the difficulty of, of juggling those two facets of your life. And, and we should really push on it now. If there are particularly single parents have just had the most incredibly difficult couple of months and it annoys me enormously that the government here in Britain really has treated childcare as a sort of afterthought. You know, schools are just breaking up and it's like everyone needs to go back to work now you know, or, or the fact that, that, you know, high income families had just much more access to homeschooling resources, you know, good internet connections, a quiet room in which for your kids to do work. And what's our plan for catching those children up? You know, their life chances are going to be, if we're not careful, scarred by this summer for, forever. Um, so it does feel like a period in which there's quite a lot to be done. And it also hopefully feels like a moment in which people are are up for, you know, hearing some theories about the way that things could change, right? I don't think anybody thinks, well, we definitely arrived at the final finished form of society and we should just keep it ticking over like this. This seems to be working out brilliantly for everybody. It's, <laughs> it's really not. And, and that's very, you know, that's very depressing in some ways. And, and, then, and there are people out there having a terrible time. But it also means that we have a chance to say, do you want to accept the settlement? I don't think we should accept the settlement. We should ask for more.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's been really really brilliant to have you on our podcast in between the lines i want to thank you again for the book which is just such a good and accessible read well thank you very much for having me thanks for listening if you like this then please subscribe and share follow us on twitter at ids underscore uk or visit ids.ac.uk